Join Jason and me and listen to our discussion about how to sell stuff your competitors can't by adopting a disruptive strategy when you approach your marketplace. We also talk about the importance of a business's reputation and the perspective of your client when it comes to the experience they will have with your services. This is Digital Bacon FM. Alina, too young to know. Great track, of course, an introduction to our marketing maestro, lawyer, brilliant man extraordinaire, Stephen Barnes. Good morning. Well, hello there, Mr. Black. I must uh, just uh, sit back a moment and, uh, you know, uh, puff my chest, pull my chest back in from all the puffing out that it's done uh, in the wake of that superb introduction. I'm not sure how much of that is designed to uh, uh, educate your audience as to the true realities of Stephen Barnes or <laughs> how much it is weighing in my, on my leg to give me a warm feeling, but it's uh, it's all warmly received, sir. I can all, assure you. Thank all, you. All it is is a mirror of your self-proclamations on your website, which has done you a great deal of good in the past. Uh, self-proclamations. Um, okay, <laughs> do you want to have a conversation about that, sir? <laughs> no, today we are talking all about selling something that your competitors can't, which I find quite intriguing. Well, yeah. So, um, you know, if you're if you're in the business of disrupting the incumbent order, and if you are able to appreciate the opportunities afforded by the connection economy. You can, as we've done, um, develop a disruptive proposition, uh, the likes of which ultimately means that by the time you've disaggregated and reaggregated value, you're still able to compete effectively in the marketplace. So it's for the dollars um, that your customers uh, have to spend on the solutions that you offer uh, compared to the offerings that your competitors are offering. Um, but you do it in a different way and you do it in such a way that you uh, produce an offering that is just so very different from that uh, of your competitors uh, that they don't have any means to, in a sense, copy you into the fray. Uh, and then you end up in a position where you've got um, a product opportunity in the marketplace that can't really be matched by your competition. So you win by default stealing the march it, uh, stealing at march mm. on the market uh, as you go. So, so you know, that's a lot of big words coming out of this loyally mouth of mine. What does that mean in real terms? Well, okay, so what we did uh, when we started the Hong Kong Visa Center is we, we recognized that actually the way that we tangibly deliver uh, an immigration service, that's where a client will uh, come to you, explain their problem. You do an assessment of their circumstances, make a determination whether you can actually help them get the visa approved or not. Then go and make up an offer of services. Then they, they decide whether they want to engage you or not. Then they, then they engage you. You do the work. Uh, and then, you know, project complete when the visa is approved and um, everybody goes home happy at the end of the day. That is the phenomenon that represents the archetypical way that an immigration service is provided uh, to uh, a consumer of an immigration service. It's just, you know, the reality of how it all works practically. Mm. So, so we understood that and we knew that in the final analysis, irrespective of how we um, arranged our proposition, that's kind of what we would be doing. We'd probably use technology in a smarter way and we'd, you know, think about adding some whistles and bells to the, the service experience and, uh, and all the rest of that good stuff. But, but at its core, that's kind of what we do. Mm. So um, understanding that, 
we developed our content proposition, the Hong Kong Visa Handbook, and then subsequently the Hong Kong Visa Giza, um, and began to publish into uh, the space, knowing that people who had immigration problems would end up on our websites after having searched for solutions to their immigration problems. And because of our 10 times content proposition, there's a pretty good chance that they'd end up on our website. So we get them onto our website, and then we give them everything that they need to be able to sort of, you know, make an informed decision as to whether or not uh, it's something that they should do for themselves knowing that they've got the resources that we've given them to be able for them to do it for themselves or whether actually it's kind of beyond their ken and they'd much prefer just to um, give the work to a professional firm like ours to do uh, and us having earned our chops so to speak uh, en route to them making that decision in our favor as a result of the experience that they've had with our content proposition which as you know is designed to help answer questions and uh, help solve problems so so by, by giving away all our IP in that fashion we create the relationships we have an opportunity to um, uh, to, to, to sell them what we normally sell and then we you know we go off and we sell them what we sell them which is the arch typical sort of immigration service solution you know, that, that everybody else supplies um, but whilst we're also doing that, Jason, what's happening is that we've showcased our knowledge and our expertise and we've organized all our IP uh, and all of the uh, resources that are needed for somebody to do a visa application by themselves without paying for any professional help. And because we've uh, arrayed all those resources, it means that you've now got or we've now got an opportunity to um sell some products and services on the strength of having developed that content proposition in that fashion, which is very, very different from which from those which our competitors uh, can sell. So, so as I say, you know, our platinum service product, which is the full 100% outsource, arch typical way of retaining an immigration professional to handle your case for you, that service is exactly the same really in terms of how you deliver it. Uh, as everything that our competitors are doing. But they're doing it the industrial economy way and we're doing it the connection economy way. Having done it the connection economy way and having built up all of those resources, essentially what it means is that instead of somebody, for example, paying us, let's say, for argument's sake, 2,000 US dollars to do a visa application for them on, an, on a 100% outsource basis, which is the type of product offering that our competitors uh, are also um, offering, what we can what we can do is we can say well okay instead of spending two thousand US dollars in the full one hundred percent outsourced service what we're what we're prepared to do is offer you the opportunity for example to um, use all our resources for free but then buy one hour of our time to consult with you and to review the use of our materials so that we can point you in the right direction as to you know the uh, kind of experience you can expect with your application, knowing that you've done it yourself, relying on our resources, but spending the time with us on a consulting basis gives us the opportunity to make sure you don't fall into any traps, into any holes. Mm. Uh, and thereby, for example, selling that that one-hour consulting service for 200 US dollars, giving an opportunity to a customer uh, to spend money with us at our normal charge-out rate, uh, which is, for argument's sake, 200 US dollars an hour, um, and because they're doing the work themselves using our online resources, which our competitors don't have, it means there we've got the opportunity to sell a $200 service, which our client with our competitors don't have that opportunity to sell a $200 service because they haven't got the resource set to be able to offer that. Similarly, you know, we've 
been able to bundle um, access to time and our knowledge resources that go beyond the stuff that we've published um, and then make that available in sort of package bundles for, for, for customers who don't want the 100% full outsource service, but want a little bit more handholding than, you know, just the mere consulting service. Mm. Um, so the upshot of that approach to providing a service proposition or a range of service propositions via a sophisticated content platform means that now we've got a, a consultation service, a silver service and a gold service that our competitors simply cannot match. And that means that any business that might have gone possibly over to our competitors, um, as well as us, potentially, depending on you know um, how uh, discerning the client's been as to which service they want to use us or our competitors on a fully outsourced basis. Now, because we've got three other service offerings that our competitors don't have, it means that we can have conversations with our customers that our competitors can't have with them because they've only they're only one trick pony. They're not a four or five trick pony as we. Are. And you've reduced so by publishing the risk in the way that price. we did, and we've we've reduced the risk of price, but they still get a relationship with us, and they mm. still get access to all of the knowledge and know-how, and um, uh, and the peace of mind ultimately that they will get knowing that they're consulting with us, and we're going to tell them if they're doing it right or they're doing it wrong. Mm. So that that's what I mean by selling stuff that your competitors can't. Now, is there is there any risk to somebody taking the consultation? Not properly, not properly heeding your advice, submitting it, failing, and then them coming back to you. Would you then need to engage them again to understand what? Or rather, would they need to engage you again to understand what happened, or you just set them straight and that's the end of it? Well, it depends what they want to do at that point. You know, nine times out of ten, if they've been denied, um, they, you know, that's not the end of the road for them. They don't just give up. You know, mm. they've got a lot invested in Hong Kong and they want to bring it about. So they'll, they'll they'll want to pursue and carry on with it. So at that point, they'll come back to us. But but uh, but it, but um, well, it's a fair question to ask, Jason. That, um, you know, we do a lot of individual consultations where we only see the client once. They use our resources, off they go. Um, I can't remember a single instance of anybody having come back and um, said, "Oh, I use your resources after the consultation, and they got denied." Can you help? Because mm. what tends to happen is that when they have that initial consultation with us, we can tell them right from the get-go, you know, whether they've got a strong case or whether they've got a weak case. Mm. Um, and normally, if the case is strong. They can make some technical errors en route, but normally the immigration department will, will, will give them the benefit of the doubt and, and, and let them be approved. Mm -hmm. If the case is weak, uh, given the way that weaknesses manifest themselves in cases, and we're, we're looking for those right from, you know, from minute one of the engagement, even on a consulting basis, we're able to head off any problems like that because they've engaged us right from the outset and we tell them squarely, no, if you pursue your application, you know, in the way that you're anticipating, you'll get refused. Here's a few suggestions about how you might otherwise want to, you know, reposition it or otherwise strengthen it. Mm. So the upshot is that, you know, if they've come to us early on in that first hour, we're able to give them probably 80% of all the sort of level, all the confidence uh, that they need to know that the case is going to be successful. They just need to prosecute it properly. Uh, and the reason why they're um, using their own labor and just buying our IP, so to speak, is because they, you know, they don't have a budget or they want to save the money or they're intellectually engrossed by it or or they just like the idea of doing paperwork. Some people are like that. They're very efficient and effective at it. And the idea of giving the work out to somebody else who's just anathema to them, particularly when they've got a complete resource set at their disposal for them to fathom it for themselves. Now, if 
if all service businesses and legal professions in uh, legal services in particular are a matter of leveraging time and selling time, is there a danger that you sell your time too cheap and people just take you up on the 200 buck per hour offer and you then lose the the opportunity of the platinum one or is there an emotional uh, thing happening behind the scenes that people take the one over the other? Well, the emotional thing that's going on around the scenes is that, you know, by the time they've come to see us and they've made the decision about which way they want to go, um, usually the decision is made then that because of our proposition of a W money back guarantee and we've told them that we can get them approved, um, money sort of falls out of the equation or the price tends to fall out of the equation and they'll instruct us on a full platinum service basis. Um, but here's the interesting thing about all of this, Jason, you know, disruptive pricing and selling stuff that your competitors can't. What we've come to understand is that even though we've got, you know, f- uh, three different products that our competitors absolutely cannot uh, match, uh, they can't sell the stuff that we're selling, uh, 90% of all our clients still go for the typical platinum 100% outsource service anyway. So we're using the notion of disruptive pricing to compete against our competitors, knowing that we're selling stuff that they can't sell, using the fact of that to create relationships and have conversations where the customer's got the opportunity to make informed decisions about truly uh, whether they want to do this work themselves or want to give it you know, to us or for somebody else to do. But by the time they've arrived at you know, that point where they make that decision, we've created such a compelling relationship with them that they never think about going anywhere else, except for those people who are just interested in price. And there's always a segment of the, the, the clientele that are interested in price, and that's perfectly okay. Those that are interested in price can take the benefits of their interactions with us uh, and then go off and uh, uh, consult with some of our uh, cheaper uh, competitors and they can get a better price there and, and they're welcome to that. If you if you have a look at how immigration works from my limited understanding of it, you need a, a certain uh, set of parameters which will then, and if you meet all of those criteria, you'll be then entitled to get a visa. So if you if you put three different visa companies next to each other and the result is, say, a working visa, the, the boxes need to be ticked no matter which <coughs> visa company you engage. Do you find that people will uh, tend to take yours over another based on price or based on uh, experience or based on reputation? Um, well, we find that people run with us based on a number of factors. Uh, first and foremost, it's reputation. Um, secondly, I think the way that we acquit ourselves during the relationship development exercise. And thirdly, when you get right down to it, you know, we put our money where our mouth is. Um, we're in the situation where, you know, we're able to assess the risk to a particular client of a refused application. Um, and, you know, we can offer a W money back guarantee uh, when we are confident that we can actually deliver the outcome as long as they um, work the strategy that we've agreed with them. So there are, there are three ultimately reasons why I think clients uh, go on to uh, engage with us. Um, and then, and then 
if they don't engage with us, it's it's typically because, as I said, they've um, they've done a little bit of research first um, and lined up their three or four alternate vendors, and then go through the process of interviewing and dealing with those alternate vendors, and then making a decision as to who they want to run with. You know, a certain number of uh, client opportunities that come our way, it's clear that um, the clients, you know, in that track, and that's how they, you know, go about making decisions about who they want to uh, spend their hard-earned money with, and you know, we respect that. Uh, but in the main, uh, you know, people tend to choose us for the reasons that for the three reasons that I've just suggested, and and and, and actually, uh, I'd say that certainly two of those reasons that I've suggested our competitors can't match. They can't match us on reputation. They can't make matches on the W money back guarantee. Okay, now given that you've worked both in a connection economy and an industrial economy uh, model for uh, the immigration space. Do you think that the uh, Hong Kong Visa Center would have become as big and popular as it is now if you'd maintained an industrial economy model? No, no chance. And we deliberately set out to uh, use the connection economy model because we had to compete against, on the one hand, non-consumption. And on the other, we had to compete against you know the big, big, corporate immigration players uh, that I know intimately very well uh, and so we had to we simply had to do it differently okay so if you so, had the, if you yeah. had the resources available because I, I I know you've said that resource played a, a a part in that decision if you had the resources would you have done it differently or would you have just done the it's the same econ uh, e- uh, connection economy but just much much bigger oh I see yeah well uh, we had to well, let's back up a little bit, right? So, I, so I knew I knew that publishing a content platform would be successful for us because we've been successful with publishing content in that fashion in a very sort of uh, you know nascent early internet way uh, between 1996 and 2000. So, when I went back into um, the immigration business in the way that we are now with the Hong Kong Visa Center, 2010 it was, I knew that we were going to be using content. To, uh, to, to establish that proposition. But what I didn't understand at that time was how the internet moved on and what the internet's really all about and what ultimately the connection economy amounts to. Didn't understand that. So I kind of went into it with this idea that we would be successful using content as platform because we knew that would work. But what I didn't understand was the true power of the connection economy now that essentially everybody on the planet that you would expect to be connected is, is connected and has got a smartphone in their hand so you can communicate with them. So there was never never my intention from the get-go to do it the, uh, the old boring way because, because I couldn't compete against um, – you know the uh, the incumbents and, uh, and and I couldn't differentiate ourselves in any meaningful way. Uh, it'd just be same old, same old, and we get hammered. So what you got to do is you got to got to create a new environment. And uh, uh, and we decided that we'd compete against non-consumption, as we discussed previously, by publishing content that uh, helps a particular segment of individ of, of people in Hong Kong who who were not being served by the immigration services community, no. not being served by answering questions and helping solve problems through the provision of content that uh, that allows people to make informed decisions and for their part and for our part use that content proposition as a means to do, to create relationships mm. so there was no there was no way i was ever going to do it the old industrial way um and uh, uh, but what i didn't understand even though we made the decision but to use content i didn't understand how the connection economy had become in fact the connection economy when i set out it was only through my research and uh, and applied 
lessons uh, with our uh, with our proposition that I came to truly and fully understand what the connection economy is all about. And of course, you know, having um, uh, access to the uh, uh, the profound insights that uh, my intellectual heroes have offered me down the years. Mm. Now, from the perspective of the client, they wouldn't know whether you were connection or industrial economy because ultimately they have an issue, they need that issue resolved, and it's a set of parameters that are, that re- require legal opinion or uh, basically ticking the boxes for immigration. So they, they just get the experience, um, pay their money and, and have a result. Uh, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think by the time people get to see us, certainly if they've been on our websites prior, um, they've concluded that there's something different to us about the stuff, something different about us compared to other providers. Certainly if they've, if they've made comparison with other providers and looked at their websites, they realize that we, you know, it's sort of chalk and cheese, so to speak. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, the, uh, the customer ultimately doesn't care uh, how you know, we operate our business. But I think there's, in large part, those people who have been on our websites, they come in with a, a sneaking sense of sort of, um, I don't know what's the best way to describe this, a sneaking sense that they, you know, they're in the right hands because our content proposition has spoken clearly to that and it's kind of de-risked it for them. Because if we're putting it out there for the world to see, hanging a shingle out and saying, look, you know, this is our expertise, use this, rely on it, it'll help you save money. Um, you know, say something about us, and I think that impacts on the perception of the, of the cost of the customer. You know, before they um, before they actually get in to sit down with us. Mm. Now, in in my industry, uh, restaurateurs get together, they discuss what they do, and there is a community of sorts. You know, you share information, chefs share information. Is it the same in your business, or uh, have you had any nods from other? Uh, competitors to say, shit, how are you doing this? And do you share that? Um, okay, great question. So in terms of the competition, let's define them. The competition are, are businesses in Hong Kong that offer a service that chase, uh, an immigration service that chase the dollars that, you know, we're set up to to try and access. Uh, and, and that competitive pool is very, very wide. It's dedicated immigration practitioners. There's three or four of them, or maybe four or five of them. There's the big four accounting firms. There's two or three big law firms that offer to have an immigration capability. There's the global relocation services companies. They offer that capability. Uh, and then pottering around at the peripheries are the company secretaries and the accountants and auditors that have no business really doing immigration because they, they, know, they know nothing about immigration the same way as I know nothing about taxation in Hong Kong. But anyway, they, they offer it because it's a, a perceived um, service that's within their skill set. So uh, uh, at that level, there doesn't, there, there's no conversations going on with, uh, amongst uh, the practitioners. It's, it's not like we're a, a jolly club meeting every Friday, uh, uh, you know, talking about you know, how immigration works in Hong Kong. It's dog-eat-dog competition, think of it that way. Mm. Having said that, the culture of immigration um, uh, transcends bounder, boundaries. So uh, very often clients in Hong Kong will ask me if I've got any uh, wherewithal to help them with US immigration or Singapore immigration or whatever. And, and we don't do that because we don't have that capability. But we have you know, tried and tested relationships in all the jurisdictions around the world. So I can immediately put 
um, a client prospect into for another jurisdiction into a, a kind of like a Hong Kong visa visa type party in those other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that the global immigration profession, you know, interacts and communicates, yeah, absolutely, uh, we're always talking. So there's, I'd say, there's probably a hundred individuals around the world that um, are really operating at the top of their game in national immigration. Uh, And then there's probably maybe 10 to 20 individuals that are operating at the top of their game in global immigration. Uh, And, you know, we tend to have the same conversations and interact with each other on a pretty frequent basis uh, at that level um, because we've got lots in common. But uh, mm. down at the individual Hong Kong Immigration Services space, no, it's, uh, it's dog-eat-dog. Now, when you, when you have a look at what you've achieved and then you look to see globally who has done the same or doing similar, is there anybody on the planet who has approached the and I don't want to use the word boring, but I'm going to the the the, the idea of the, just doing boring visas. Have has anybody taken the novel approach to pitching it the way you have? No, and it's been one of the greatest sources of su- really su- su- surprise, I would say, as we've unfolded the business model that we've got down the years, expecting that you know eventually. Um, Colleagues around the world would fathom what we're doing and they could see its immediate applicability to their jurisdiction. Um, and then they'd come up, if not, you know, something that was exactly identical, they'd certainly, you know, be reverse engineering the way that we're approaching it to mm. see, you know, really what would be involved and why and how they might be able to sort of, you know, mimic it. Uh, but no, it's to my, to my great uh, delight uh, and somewhat surprise um i haven't yet seen anyone else in immigration around the world that's that's cottoned onto it and and is that because they don't understand it or they don't believe it or it's just not something that they would then apply uh, to an already existing industrial economy type practice well here, here you go right so i think in the main they don't understand it um, and why would they understand it? They've got no need to understand it. If their business is just, you know, growing incrementally and they've got all their systems tried and tested, they've got the relationships with their customers, their their profitability is, you know, it's predictable year after year. Uh, the owners are happy with the way that it is. Why would they, unless they've got massive ambitions to completely disrupt, you know, immigration in their national jurisdiction or potentially applying that disruptive processes to global immigration why why would they bother you know in the mm. main there's no uh, there's no compelling need for them to reinvent what they're doing mm. um so so in the main i'd say it's a case of you know um innovators dilemma which is clay christensen which is if you're if you've if you've molded your um, offering in a particular way, you know, you're not going to break that mold. It works. It still delivers value. You've got no, com- you've got no incentive to, to give away what you know works to go for something that you don't have any experience in, uh, and it work, and, and knowing whether it's going to work or not. Mm. Um, and most, most, most business owners are not tapped into the disruptive forces of the connection economy. No one's really cottoned on. The world is not talking about, you know, you know shouting from the rooftops about how we're shifting from the industrial to the connection. Mm. Um, so in the main, I'd say my competition are just not focused on what we're doing because they see what we're doing as sort of an aberration, unusual, um, not for them, no need for, it, for them to be like uh, like we are. 
Um, mm. and, and the side to that as well, Jason, is the fact that if you take the approach that we're taking, you actually convert yourself from being a mainstream immigration practitioner um, and turn yourself into a publishing company. Now, that sounds really quite grandiose, right, turning into a publishing company. But, you know, when you understand how WordPress works and when you understand how you can take simple digital assets like a podcast, you know, from your iPhone or a photograph that you take from your iPhone and a bit of text or you need some video that you can upload to YouTube and then cross post it back to your website. I mean, those digital assets, um, that's digital um, media that represents your publishing capability. As I say, publishing sounds grandiose, but it's actually very simple, straightforward stuff. But still, you know, the art, the, the act and art of publishing is a far cry from being a boring old immigration services provider. So not only do you have to get your head around the fact that, you know, you're giving up your um, your uh, your uh, existing security of, of currently known business operating in the industrial economy, giving that up for something uh, that's, that, that, that's difficult to do, or at least perceived, it's perceived as being difficult to do um, in the connection economy. But also it's the unknown, because if you haven't done it, you just don't know whether it's going to work or not. So why, why would you bother? Mm. Uh, so I, I think I think I think that in large part explains why none of our competitors have, um, uh, have sort of have copied us. By the same token, uh, I'm, I'm damn certain that uh, the overwhelming majority of global immigration practitioners at this moment in time are not exactly coming to our website every day, wanting to see what we're doing and the progress that we're making and how we're doing it. People don't think like that. They're just only interested in their own businesses and they've got to spend time on their own businesses. So we're probably not getting a look in from. Uh, from the competition mm. but I, I must say down the years i've been i've been expecting uh people to sort of cotton on to what it's all about and see them you know expect them to sort of copy uh what we're all about and and it hasn't happened the yeah. the closest that has that has happened if i may just sort of finalize this point um is a, a guy in canada who i've got a lot of respect for and i send some work over to every now and again he um uh, he was very uh, intrigued by uh, our entire proposition and had been following us for a long time. Uh, and then he asked if we could have a conversation three or four years ago. So I had a conversation with him and explained to him exactly what we're doing and how it all works and what it was all about. Uh, and he bought into the notion, um, but he looked at his small practice, seven or eight people, and he looked at the time that he had available to him. And he knew that the web had to form, you know, some strategic um, um dimension to the way that his practice was configured uh, and the, the 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 solution that he came up with given all the constraints that that, that were upon him for him for him to sort of move from the industrial to connection was to develop a podcast series a very well done podcast series talking about uh, canadian immigration and he's gone on to develop a great proposition building upon uh, his weekly podcast um uh, content uh, we don't use podcast content only we use you know myriad different types of content and we publish a lot more frequently than he does mm. but i cite that as an example of someone who you know has gotten right into the dna of intelligent content marketing uh, and then looked at you know his own practice and his own um, limitations on being able to publish in the way that we do and has settled on one particular publishing dy dynamic which is podcasting uh, and, and and that's the way that he's uh, incorporated connection economy type dynamics into um you know his immigration practice mm. but that's that's the extent of it right and that's been the most sort of elaborate um 
uh, implementation of the kind of stuff that we're doing in, in, in other jurisdictions, and I haven't seen anything beyond that. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Stephen. It's the bottom of the hour. You've got to carry on, I'm sure. And um, we'll catch up again next Friday, same time. Digital Bacon FM. Now that you know how to sell stuff your competitors can't, join us in the next episode to find out how to get from zero to one.